The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, we'll go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is, um, as we noted last week, this is the classical passage, what is uh, sometimes called uh, the classicus locus of the resurrection. And um, we're going to read the first eight verses. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. This is the reading of God's word. Amen. Okay. All right, so this is a great passage. Um, obviously, uh, as I noted last week, uh, what Paul does is he opens and closes with the gospel. Um, the passage is uh, in our Bibles because the Corinthians got the idea that somehow the dead weren't raised. Now, that wasn't necessarily a specific denial of the resurrection of Jesus, but it was a denial of the resurrection, bodily resurrection of believers. And so Paul is going to set them straight on this. And uh, actually, it's going to be verses 12 to 19 that give us um, some of the most potent arguments in favor of the resurrection. Uh, although in our passage tonight, we have some, some wonderful uh, evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And so Paul, uh, what Paul wants to do is Paul wants to reorient them to the gospel. But of course, that's what Paul's been doing through this whole book, is trying to reorient these Corinthians to the gospel. And um, it got me thinking today that when we talk about the gospel, we, we, we use that word, that phrase gospel, and we use it regularly, and it's, it's part of our language, right? It's part of um, the, um, the evangelical uh, uh, language that we use, we you know, gospel-centered that, gospel-driven that, and we talk about the gospel. But when we talk about the gospel, we have to remember there are two things that we have to avoid at all costs. And the first is to make other things which are not the gospel the gospel. The first thing that we have to avoid is we have to avoid making other things that are not the gospel, the gospel. You do understand this happens all the time and it's happening all around us. You know, this is a gospel issue. That's a gospel issue. This is a gospel issue. And, and normally what happens is when we have people that start saying this is the gospel, that's the gospel, 
um, we usually denounce those things um, most often because they're the kind of things that we're opposed to. But we're not immune from making things that are not the gospel the gospel. For those of us who are more um, socially, morally, and politically conservative, it can become very easy for us to make our issues gospel issues when they have nothing to do with the gospel. And so I would warn us, beware of making things into the gospel that are not the gospel. Okay? But the second thing we have to avoid, and this is perhaps even more dangerous for us, is we have to avoid assuming the gospel. Okay? So you, you know when you walk into this, this building week by week, you know you, you actually assume that there's some sort of foundation under us. Actually, it's just floor joists. <laughs> I don't. Th- does that count as a foundation, Charlie? No, it's, it's not even a foundation. I have bad news for you. You're not even standing on a foundation, and you were assuming that you were. <laughs> assuming the gospel is is the biggest danger for us. And what I mean by that is is a, a number of things. Uh, first of all, just assuming that the people around you understand the gospel. Assuming that because uh, your family does uh, family devotions and you go to a Bible teaching church that, uh, that everybody must understand the gospel. That's not true. Don't assume that. Don't assume that the people around you understand the gospel. Right? Don't assume that everybody around you believes the gospel. There's a lot of things that we can assume about the gospel that end up being an absolutely uh, crucial mistake. But here's the thing is we, we simply cannot just take some sort of comfort in the fact that we go to a Bible teaching church and we just then assume the gospel and assume everybody understands it, assume everybody believes it, and then kind of get on to other things. That is, that is a horrific mistake. And the reason is, is because what we, what one generation assumes, the next generation will completely ignore. And so you can't assume the gospel. Parents, don't assume the gospel in your family. I just think, I was thinking today, I, I, I bought, um, the, my grandson's, um, what was our favorite version of Pilgrim's Progress when the kids were growing up, Dangerous Journey. Dangerous Journey, the artwork is fantastic and the the story is so, uh, of Pilgrim's Progress, so well done. And and I was looking at that and um, we weren't going to give him our copy because our copy is our copy, right? So I bought him one and I thought to myself, how important it is to evangelize your kids. Talk to your kids about the gospel. Don't assume that because they're raised in a Christian home that they understand and believe the gospel. 
assuming the gospel, whether it's in church life or a preaching ministry or in family life, is absolutely fatal. You dare not assume the most important reality in all of the universe. Don Carson says, if the gospel is merely assumed while relatively peripheral issues ignite our passion, we will train a new generation to downplay the gospel and focus zeal on the periphery. I think that's exactly what what we see today. Zealous for the periphery, assuming the gospel, and we dare not. There is, there is um, no better passage, in a sense, to cause us to hold to the center than 1 Corinthians 15. So if, if you thought to yourself, well, okay, 1 Corinthians 15, yeah, resurrection. I know, we, we, we sing about resurrection like every Easter. I know the hymns. <laughs> Paul says... This is all about the gospel. And so there is, there is really, I can't think of a better passage. There may be equal passages, but I can't think of a better passage to help us hold fast to the center, to the things that are most important than 1 Corinthians 15. And so last week, we're not going to review, but last week we looked at verses 1 and 2. Paul, I make known to you, remember Paul's not saying, I make known to you for the first time, I make known to you as in, I make known to you again, the gospel which I preached to you. Okay. One of my goals in this life is to be able, if, if God gives me uh, lots of years, okay, one of my goals is to be able to uh, climb those steps one last time and look you in the eyeballs, and look your children in the eyeballs, and your children's children in the eyeballs, and be able to say, for however many years, I have made known to you the gospel. And if you go to hell, it's your fault, not mine. You know, I believe that wholeheartedly. To be clean of the blood of all men, right? I don't want to go to the judgment seat of Christ and stand there and be accountable for people that never heard the gospel from me. So I want to be able to say, I made known to you the gospel. I'm, I want to I want to I want to preach the gospel for such a long time that I'm able to say I preach the gospel to your mommy and daddy I preach the gospel to you I preach the gospel to your children and I preach the gospel to your children's children they've heard it from this pulpit a thousand times 10,000 times with clarity and earnestness and if you perish it will not be for lack of hearing the gospel and so Paul says with, really, I, I, I can't help but to see this earnestness, the gospel which I preach to you, which you received in which you stand. And so to, to receive the gospel, so the idea, of course, as we said last week, welcome it. 
Colossians 2.6, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, welcoming the message of the gospel, welcoming the Savior, accepting it as, as, uh, as what it is, which is the word of God. And so Paul says, I preached it, you received it, and now you stand in it. You do understand that this, that that little phrase, in which you stand, obliterates the idea of easy believism uh, and decisional regeneration. The Christian faith is, is not simply about some kind of transaction that you made on such and such a date that you can scribble in the front of your Bible and present it to God on the judgment day as if that's proof of your salvation. The gospel is something not that just makes some sort of transactional thing between you and God at your mama's knee, but rather the gospel is that in which you stand. It's your standing place. The gospel is... the. Think of it this way, the gospel is the orbit in which you live. It's, it's the very oxygen that you breathe. In the gospel, you live and move and have your being. And then Paul says, through which you're saved. Okay? Through which you're saved. That's what we left off last week. Through which you're saved. So here is, this, this is why you you got to preach the gospel because the gospel is the message through which God saves people. God rescues or delivers people from his wrath through the message of the gospel. Okay? So let me just let me just say something that should be absolutely obvious to everybody here, and that is this. If you are saved, you are saved. Because you heard and believed the gospel. You're you're not saved apart from hearing the gospel. Okay? You have to hear the gospel. By the way, is this not the very catalyst for, for evangelism and missionary endeavor? The very belief that people, in order to be saved, need to hear the gospel. They need to believe. And so Paul says, through which you're saved. And of course, saved. (laughs) Saved from what? Saved from God's wrath. You you do realize that we cut the, the nerve of urgency for preaching the gospel when we marginalize the wrath of God. And when we marginalize eternal punishment you realize that when we make those things um, just nominally important off to the side, put them to the periphery, what in the world is the impetus for preaching the gospel? And what is the gospel that you preach? When Paul says, through which you are saved, that is, through which you are delivered, you are rescued, and you've been rescued from the wrath of God. Paul says twice in 1 Thessalonians, first in 1.10 and then in 5.9. So we've, we've turned from idols to 
serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So if there's anything in the Bible that is that is unambiguous, it is that that judgment is coming. Payday is coming. One of these days, the wrath of God will be unfurled. And Jesus is the one who saves us from the wrath to come. First, uh, that's five, nine for God has not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, then here's, here's the part that gets us. If you hold fast, unless you've believed in vain. Okay. Now, I've taught on, on this many times, the conditionality that is in warning passages. This qualifies as a warning passage through which you're saved if you hold fast unless you believed in vain. And so what we, what we take away from this is, is not the idea that, um, uh, well, you can be saved and then maybe you can be lost after you're saved. That's not, that's not the... Um, the, the threat in Scripture, the threat in Scripture is never that God will unjustify you, unregenerate you, unredeem you, and kick you out of his family. That's never the threat. The threat is not in what God uh, is going to reverse. The threat is... Examine yourself and see if you're in the faith, if indeed you pass the test. The threat is, listen, you, you might give up running the race. And if you do, that just simply proves one thing. Your faith was in vain. Your faith was empty. That's the threat. And so, in, in a real sense, what this is, is it is a call to persevering faith. I've, I've, I've said this before, and, and, and will say it until I can't talk anymore. And that is, if, if a person makes a profession of faith, and then turns around and walks away from Christ... What the scripture says about that person is not that they lost something that God gave them, but they deceived themselves into thinking they had something which they never possessed. So the, 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 the passage that explains this to us better than any other is 1 John 2.19. So there was a group in, in, in this uh, church or groups of churches that actually had departed from uh, the faith. And John says of them, they went out from us, so they departed from us, because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, 
they would not have gone out from us. You see the logic, right? But in order to show they were not of us, they went out from us. Okay. Now, is it is it a painful thing? Uh, I mean, you know, you you can't you can't be together as a as a church family for twenty six years and not have the uh, the heartbreaking stories of people that you uh, prayed with and took communion with and heard the word with who now don't want anything to do with Jesus at all. Okay? That's just the painful reality. And here's the message. The gospel through which you're saved. If you hold fast. Hold fast? What's hold fast? Hold fast is to keep on believing and to keep on trusting and to persevere in, in that faith and to endure in that trust. Unless, of course, you believed in vain. Unless, of course, that, that, that profession of faith ended up being an empty profession. Is it possible for people to believe in vain? And the answer is yes. And it happens all the time. And this is why the gospel that we preach needs to be actually the true gospel, which is a call to people to repent of their sins, trust Jesus and follow him, and not give people the, 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 the false idea that somehow all they need to do is, is somehow just uh, tip their hat to Jesus and everything's going to be okay, no matter how they live afterwards. That is a lie. And it is a lie that has, that, that, that Satan has used to, uh, to put people at ease when they should have been alarmed. They should have been terrified over the condition of their soul. And yet because they heard a message that was a truncated reductionistic gospel, they ended up thinking, I'm safe, I'm secure. Doesn't matter that there's no fruit in my life. Doesn't matter that I'm still doing exactly the same things I did before I said I believed in Jesus. And it doesn't matter that I don't belong to a church. And it doesn't matter that there's no change in my life whatsoever. I have my insurance policy. And then that person stands on the last day and woe be to the person that gave them assurance of salvation and said, you're okay. So continuance in the faith is non-negotiable, right? (laughs) That should actually be, um, easily accepted by all of us, no matter what our theological bent is. Continuance in the faith is non-negotiable. Christian life is a race and it has a finish line. You can get suckered into bypass meadows, for those of you who love Bunyan and Pilgrim's Progress, You can get suckered into bypass meadows, but guess what? The true pilgrim gets back on the path, right? And so how in the world do we make sure that we hold fast? That's an important important question, right? How do I make sure I hold fast? 
you do understand, and, and this, is not, this is not new, you understand that the promises of God are to save us from despair, and the threats of God are to spare us from presumption. So, so you have um, what uh, the old uh, New England Puritan Thomas Hooker called uh, the poor doubting believer. Okay. They're always just one, am I, am I saved? Has God really forgiven my sins? Is, is Christ really mine? What do, they, what do they need? They need the promises of God. They need promises. They need the sweet promises of the gospel. It says, if you're one of his sheep, you're in his hand and you'll never perish. And the one who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. And so, poor doubting believer, the promises of God are all yes and amen to you and they are meant to sustain your faith and to keep you from despair. But oh, presumptuous believer who presumes upon the grace of God and presumes that that because they grew up in this family or went to that church or did this ministry or did this or did that, and no matter what the good thing is that they did, they just presume that I'm one of God's children, the deal is done, I don't need to worry about perseverance or any of that nonsense, I don't need to worry about a walk with God, I am safe and I'm secure, and I will tell you there are Dozens and dozens and dozens of passages for you, and they are threats. And those threats, like this one, if you hold fast, unless you believed in vain, those threats are designed to keep you from presuming upon the grace of God. What is it that keeps us from accepting the threats? And it's real simple. My pride. Those threats must be for other people. No, you know what? There are times where I need to preach those threats right to myself if I'm going to hold fast. So if I'm going to hold fast, I need the promises. And if I'm going to hold fast, I need the threats. I need both. I need both. I, there is no such thing as just a, like, I'm just a promise-only gal, right? I'm just a promise-only guy. No, you need the bit and the bridle and the spur, they all work together. So how do you hold fast? I didn't want to spend too much time on this, but let me just go through these because these 
are things that we need to remember. Biggest helps for us to hold fast? Well, hear the gospel preached and apply it to yourself repeatedly. Refuse to assume the gospel and actually love to hear it preached. And uh, when you read it in the scriptures, rejoice in it and apply it to yourself. Remember that you need the gospel today just as much as you needed it on the day that you were saved. And so you need to just say, hey, I, I am... I am this needy person, and what do I need today? I need to hear the gospel. I need to hear of God's love for me. I need to hear that Christ paid for the penalty of my sins. I need to hear that Jesus was raised up from the dead. I need to hear that Jesus intercedes for me, and I need to hear that Jesus is coming back for me. And I need to hear that my sins are forgiven, and they're cast as far as the east is from the west. And I need to hear that they've been buried in the sea of God's forgetfulness. And I need to remember, I need to hear it preached to me that he remembers my sins no more. I'm going to persevere. You know, you know what I'm going to cling to? If I'm going to endure, you know what I'm going to cling to? I'm going to cling to those most basic truths. That God used to deliver me. When you're on your deathbed. You're not going to be pondering the mysteries of supralapsarianism or infralapsarianism for those of you who object to supralapsarianism. You know what you're going to be you know what you're going to be thinking on your deathbed? My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. That's what's going to comfort you on your deathbed. On your deathbed, you're not going to be wrangling through your mind. So was post-mill or ah-mill or pre-mill right? You're going to marvel at the blood of Jesus that's cleansed you from your sins. So, how do you endure? Hear the gospel preached and hear it preached with eagerness be be like a greedy gospel miser, okay? I want to hear the word of God, and I want to hear the gospel, okay? Second, be regular in fellowship with other believers. Do you know, uh, you know who the most likely people are to walk away from the faith? They're the ones that are the most detached from other Christians, If you think you can make it on your own, you are a serious spiritual knothead. You're not designed to make it to heaven on your own. You're designed to to, to get to heaven with arms locked with others. And sometimes you're the one that's pulling them and sometimes they're the one that's pulling you. Regular fellowship with other believers. In that uh, David Clarkson sermon that I referred to a couple weeks ago in preaching on um, God Loves the Gates of Zion, Clarkson actually makes this, this point that 
that it is assembling publicly with other Christians that is one of the great antidotes to apostasy and backsliding. Right? You, you understand why that works, right? So, and, and, and by the way, we can always do better in these things. But the reason that it works that way is because if I'm surrounded by, by nobody but my own voice, I'm going to tell myself what I want to hear. Even after reading the Bible, I can still tell myself what I want to hear. When I'm surrounded with people who love me and actually care about my perseverance and and the condition of my faith, then I have people who can actually look me in the eye and ask how my soul is. And I have real people that are actually praying for my soul and my perseverance and there is something about the encouragement of 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 being in fellowship with God's people this is why when Christians don't fellowship with God's people okay um when when they just pop in and pop out all right what they're doing is they're robbing themselves of a means of grace for them to persevere If you pop in and pop out and you never have any eyeball to eyeball contact, soul to soul contact, if you don't have those kinds of people in your life, who's going who's gonna to come after you when you start to stray? Well, I'm not that kind of sheep. Well, you don't know much about sheepology then. Sheep have a tendency And that tendency is to stray. And guess what? Am I my brother's keeper? You better believe you are. You better believe you are. And so I make sure that I, I, not just just in fellowship, but actually in a body where I'm developing meaningful relationships with people so that somebody actually knows this sheep by name. Number three, we've already touched on this, so I'll just say it. Bank your hope on the promises and give heed to the threats. Number four, make it a matter of conscience to personally walk with God. What that means is that every day this book is my companion. And every day I make sure that I spend time at the throne of grace. I have to make it a matter of conscience. And some people might say, well... That sounds kind of legalistic to me. Sounds kind of legalistic. I mean, you know, I mean, it's all about grace and it's not like, well, understand this. I'm not telling you that if you read your Bible every day and pray that God's going to reward you with uh, peanut butter brownies. God doesn't, doesn't work on uh, uh, 
quid pro quo, okay? If you don't know what that is, then you you never watch the news. God doesn't say, well, I guess I'll bless. We're not talking about merit. We're not talking about earning. We're not talking about anything. What we're talking about is, is that God has my heart. And what he has to say to me is the most important thing about my day. And because God has my heart, I'm going to pour out my heart to him. I make that a matter of conscience. I keep one of these in my Bible every year and I have for um, 35 years. Just a Bible reading plan. You know why? Because I want a goad to my conscience if I'm starting to slack off. You know, and I just remind you of... Pastor Blaze preaching here about 20 years ago. He says, if, if that makes me a legalist, then I pray, oh, God, make me a legalist. Okay. Make it a matter of conscience. I'm going to walk close with God. Why? People that don't hold fast all have something in common. At some point, what they are now in public, they had become in private a long time before. I've never met anybody that says, Pastor, I love the word of God. I love to hear it preached. I read it and I pray. Uh, and, um, And by the way, I'm walking away from the faith. I hear people all the time say, I don't read my Bible anymore. I don't pray anymore. If that's you, let me just say this as clearly as possible. Watch out. Watch out because you are treading on incredibly dangerous ground. What is it that that holds your soul and holds your faith intact? It is it is a walk with God. I have I have told you before that when I went off to college there was a there was a period of time where I started to get sort of disillusioned I thought I was going to go to like Christian Disneyland at Biola and all the people and we would just like have bible studies and just sing in the dorms all the time and and uh, everybody would walk around and and uh, just you know be in a state of prayer, and I found out, wow, um, that's not true, and uh, <laughs> and I started to uh, actually drift from from the Lord. And I will tell you, one of the things that God used to hold the center was the fact that I had assignments that forced me to read the Bible. For whatever reason, 
God drilled deep down into my soul at 13 years old. You read that book and you read it every day. That will serve you well. Everybody's talking about antibodies. Being in that book and keeping a close walk with God is the best antibody to the virus of apostasy. Number five, this one is not just for you, Jason. This is make use of the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. Which, by the way, goes right back to number one. Hear the gospel and apply it to yourself repeatedly. Do you know, here's here's the thing. Um, When we take the Lord's Supper, you know what we're doing? We're being powerfully reminded of the gospel in visible words. The gospel, or the Lord's Supper is, is... should never be just some sort of ritual that we go through. Uh, you know, okay, this is the time where he tells us we need to confess our sins. And okay, now this is the time. Okay, whew, that took longer than I thought. No, when you look at that bread, when you look at that cup, that is a potent reminder to us of the fact that you, in order to live, you need to eat and to drink Christ by faith. Don't neglect the Lord's table. Somebody asked me, when are we going to resume the Lord's table? I said, when we can all actually gather together again. When you come together as a body. And even though it's not a lot of food, it is a feast because of what it represents. And then finally, I would say this. You, you want help in order to hold fast? Be on guard against the sins that weaken your faith. Be on guard against the sins that weaken your faith. You do understand that indwelling sin and besetting sin and the sin that so easily entangles us actually can can drain our faith, weaken our faith. Think of your faith as a bathtub filled up with water. And that favorite sin of yours is just like pulling the plug out for a few minutes. Then you try to stick it back in. You do that day after day after day. And you will find your faith in a weakened state. It is is well nigh impossible to maintain a growing walk with Christ and be indulging yourself in secret sin. Everybody jumps to the obvious ones, and there are obvious ones. But I want to say that just as, just 
whatever you can say, for instance, about, let's say, pornography and lust, you can also say about anger and covetousness. Entertain things in your mind, entertain them in your heart, entertain them in your life as if they were not trying to kill you is suicide. And so I want to be on guard. Am I a sinner? And the answer is absolutely. I'm a sinner. Hi, I'm Brian. I'm a sinner. Okay? I'm Brian. I'm a big sinner. For those of you who have real, a real trouble uh, believing that, uh, you can just ask Ariel afterwards. She'll tell you. Yes, believe what he said. He's a big sinner. Okay? But I will tell you, to acknowledge that you're a big sinner is important. But it's not the same as fighting your sin. Anybody can argue or can claim that they're a big sinner. Of course, I'm a sinner. You're supposed to say that, by the way. Right? And what would, what would my reformed friends think if I said, well, I wasn't really that bad of a sinner? You understand that's not the issue. The issue is whether I'm fighting my sin. Am I fighting my sin? If I give up and I stop fighting my sin and I let my sin simply rule over me without any fight, and it doesn't matter what it is. Can I just tell you again? It could be jealousy. It could be anger. It could be lust. It could be greed. It could be pride. It could be self-pity. If I just let that rule over me, that is going to drain my faith. And the reason why is because those who have the spirit of God in them and actually have real faith, they, when, when they are being torn between who's going to rule over me and they end up then, as it were, laying down to their sin, saying, I give up, take me. They become a walking contradiction. And walking contradictions cannot be walking contradictions for a long time. You have to make up your mind what you really are. You do understand this is, this is why so many of our young people abandon the faith when they're in college. It's not because um, they met some brilliant professor who's given them uh, intellectual ammunition against the faith that they've been brought up with. It's because they have a moral freedom that they began to, to go down the wrong paths and they've started to taste the forbidden fruit of the world and they like it. 
And at some point, by the way, you can deceive yourself for quite a long time into um, this, is, uh, this is where I eat, okay, the cafe of the forbidden fruit, and, uh, and yet then I still make sure that I go to the house of God. You can do that for a while, but I will tell you there will come a point where the internal conflict and internal contradiction is going to demand to be resolved, And it means you either give up your paramour. Nobody uses the word paramour anymore. Your mistress of sin and go to Christ or you give up Christ for your mistress. That's what happens. That's what happens. And so if you want to hold fast, say, no peace treaties with sin. None. Anything that is a threat to my faith is my enemy, and here's my philosophy of war. Kill your enemy. Do you know it, it is incumbent upon us in this warfare to be absolutely ruthless against our enemy? Okay. Satan hates you and desires your undoing. He desires your harm. He desires your ruin. He desires the ruin of your marriage. He desires the ruin of your reputation. He desires the ruin of your family. And most of all, he desires the destruction of your faith. And so why in the world would you cooperate with him? Don't cooperate. Be ruthless with your sin. That may require some serious humility for, for some of you just to say, you know what? Yep, I've, I've made that little sin my bosom buddy for a while. Well, now it's time for me to put my hands around bosom buddy's neck and choke the life out of it. Okay? You remember... John Owen was absolutely thoroughly correct when he said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now, here's the challenge. You need to kill the sins that you've grown to like. No big deal to kill sin that's not threatening your soul. So, I didn't expect to go that long on that. So, we'll get to matters of first importance next week. Although, this is, of course, important. I want to leave you with this. As long as this little phrase, unless 
you believed in vain is in your Bible. You need to watch over your heart with all diligence. Even if you're old, you need to watch over your heart with all diligence. There is, um, there is not an automatic sanctification that just comes with getting old. I wish. I wish like the, the more gray hair you have is like, oh, the holier you get and the less interested in sin you are. It doesn't work that way. Okay. It doesn't work that way at all. But you know what? Young people, you need to really watch your heart. You really need, really need to guard your heart. Because you have an enemy that wants to do his best to keep you from being a godly mother and a godly wife and a godly husband and a godly father. You have an enemy that wants to do his best to keep you from serving Christ and being useful in his church. And if he's able to, to, to litter his pathway with one more soul that didn't make it, he is thrilled to death. Watch over your heart. Don't take anything for granted. Be serious about holding fast. Be serious about holding to the center. Be serious about being a a gospel-saturated person. No matter how many times you've heard it, be serious about, about that old, old story of Jesus and his love. Don't ever outgrow it. Don't ever assume it. Hold it fast. And what you'll find... As you hold it fast, is that there's one who's holding you, and he promises never to let you go. Let's pray. Father, these these are sobering words. And Father, we've heard him before. We pray that we would not be calloused to these words. But we pray that we would be tender and receptive. Father, help us to be alert and watchful. Help us to be vigilant in the fight. Father, help us to lay hold of eternal life. We pray that you would help us to help others as well. In Christ's name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. 
For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.